Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is wonderful to have you with us for, of course, what is going to be a stellar, maybe an interstellar, half an hour of science on your radio, straight into your ears. Um, My name is Claire and with me on the show, as as per usual, we have... Stu and we have Chris. Hello. Hi. Oh, ahoy, hoy. <laughs> now, Stu, um, what sort of mind-bending, uh, you know, galaxy-shifting science have you brought for us today? Ah, uh, look, uh, it's it's kind of about looking up, but it's not really extraterrestrial in any way. It's very much earthbound, and it is all about how. We humans are causing all sorts of problems here on Earth, for mainly for ourselves and also for all of the other organisms that we share the planet with. But I've got a bit of a story about how a large-scale global climate problem that we thought we'd solved may be actually being made worse by another global climate problem that we haven't solved. Oh, so good dear. old humans. Uh-huh. Good old humans making things worse for ourselves uh, again. Is this something to do with the ozone layer? Yes, it is something to do with the ozone layer. Okay. Okay. Well, um, looking forward to um, becoming more depressed about that. (laughs) And Chris, what do you have for us this week? Any? um... Uh, Yeah, I can't help you with the the happy stories, I'm afraid, Claire. All Um, right, go on then. Just lay it on me. Well, like, it's just, no, it's just because, like, this is a bit negative, I guess. You know, we do like to talk about science achievements, the good science achievements here on Lost in Science. But, you know, we also don't shy away from bad stuff either. And in the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen both good and bad sides of science on steroids, you could say. Dexamethasone, if you want to be precise. A little, um, <laughs> little COVID joke there. Is that a little COVID uh, in-joke? Yes, it is. Yeah, great. Okay. But yeah, you might recall that last year, Stu interviewed epidemiologist Gideon Myrowitz Katz about fraudulent mm. studies of the drug ivermectin. Yeah. I do, yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, since then, there have been many more fraudulent studies of the same drug unearthed, and the scale of it has turned out to be quite surprising. But, you know, when you consider that ivermectin is a topic that's become highly polarised and politicised, you know, on the one hand, maybe there is more incentive for fraud, but on the other hand, there's also more scrutiny of the studies, because, you know, people mm. have been very careful of the stuff. But anyway, about the same time as uh, this was all going on, there was an unrelated opinion article published in the BMJ, also known as the British Medical Journal, which asked the provocative question whether it's time to assume that health research is fraudulent until proven otherwise. So this article, they quoted in particular an Australian-based researcher, Ben Moll, that around 20% of trials are fraudulent. 20%? One in five? Yeah, it is. It okay. is a flabbergasting figure. I don't use that word flabbergasting lightly. It is. 
it is flabbergasting number. Okay. So, um, yeah, what, what evidence is there to back the, up that claim? Yeah, look, well, this is what I wanted to find out. Um, this is, like, I think this is a really important story. Um, science and the integrity of science, of course, are both vitally important. So, yeah, I wanted to look into this. Um, this is, I will warn you, this is shaping up to be a multi-part story. Um, so strap in. But um, I thought at least I'd start by speaking to uh, Australian-based Ben Moll about where his estimate comes from, this 20% figure, um, how widespread this problem is, and what he thinks can be done about it. Fantastic. So that is part one of a potentially multi-part series, but you're not going to commit to how many parts it I'm is. Not going to, I was going to see where the story leads you're going to me. See yeah, where I've got the some story threads goes. I'm pulling on. Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing um, from Ben Moll later on. Great. On with the show. September 6th, 1987, a global agreement was made to solve uh, a human-caused climate issue that had the potential to cause massive problems for people and everything else that calls the Earth home. Uh, And this is what is known as the Montreal Protocol, which is actually the first international environment treaty to be ratified by every country on Earth. Uh, the last uh, the last nation to join was South Sudan, who joined in 2012. So that's right. the first time, first time ever, uh, an international environment treaty is universally accepted and ratified by every country, which is pretty amazing, really. It is amazing and sets an incredible precedent, um, never to be repeated. I imagine. Yeah, poss- possibly a, an a, an unrepeatable yeah precedent. Um, so the protocol, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, the protocol was an agreement to phase out the use of chlorofluorocarbons, uh, or CFCs, which damage the ozone layer. And developed countries pretty much did that in less than 10 years. So by the mid-90s, developed countries had phased out CFCs. Um, developing nations had a bit longer allowed because they you know, had, didn't have the... The, you know, the, uh, the capital to probably replace some of these things. But pretty much we're on track to, you know, they're, they're pretty much gone all over the world now. No one's really relying on them. They're not really manufacturing them anymore. Uh, the ozone layer, if you're not really sure what that is, it's a layer of a particular oxygen molecule, which is O3. Uh, that's a, a molecule consisting of three oxygen atoms in one molecule. That's different to the oxygen we breathe, which is O2. That's two oxygen atoms. Ozone is uh, toxic, I think, isn't it? Like, well, in large amounts. Yeah, basically, if you breathe ozone, you would die. But, yeah, but uh, not, only in large amounts. Like, you can... It's, yeah. it's created by, like, electrical sparks and things. It gives you that smell when you have electrical... Yeah. Bad electrics. Mm. Is that weird smell? Yeah, you, ozone. You can, you can smell it. But, yeah, if, you, if, you, if all you breathed was ozone, you wouldn't be able to use that oxygen in mm. the way that we need to. Um but ozone forms a layer in the upper atmosphere 15 to 30 kilometres up. So the ozone layer is very important. It absorbs most of the ultraviolet radiation that comes to us from the sun, uh, which allows all of us organisms in our present forms 
uh, to survive on the surface of the planet. UV radiation is actually quite uh, dangerous. Uh, at high intensities, it can damage DNA, which would cause all sorts of mutations in lots of living things, including various kinds of cancers in animals and in humans. Now, the ozone layer has been recovering since the Montreal Protocol, through uh, although um, annual holes or areas of thinner ozone appear each year at the South Pole and sometimes at the North Pole as well. So we don't have a monopoly in the Southern Hemisphere. They do have ozone holes in the North Pole as well. Um, the holes form in winter at the poles when ice crystals in the atmosphere, when the upper atmosphere interact with residual chlorine gases and break down the ozone molecules in the stratosphere, which reduces the absorption of UV light, which is the thing we're trying to avoid. Now, this is likely to continue until at least the middle of this century, so probably the 2050s we're looking at, uh, until the chlorine levels up in the stratosphere return to pre-1980 levels, which isn't even when we started using CFCs, so it's actually going to take longer than that to get back down to pre-industrial levels, which is probably what we really should be aiming for. But the annual holes are decreasing in size, so the holes still are forming, but they're getting smaller over time. So we kind of have solved the problem. And because we have banned CFCs, that's still in place, it's unlikely that this trend will reverse. The holes should continue to get smaller unless some other chemical process contributes to the breakdown of ozone. Enter the black summer bushfires of 2019-2020 and the smoke plume they generated which was comparable to a volcanic eruption according to a study published in Science last week. Plumes of smoke from the fires injected large quantities of aerosols or airborne chemical particles high into the stratosphere and this has led to speculation this could have an impact on the ozone layer. It's already been suggested by other research that the megafires, as they've been called in science journal articles, were likely caused at least in part by anthropogenic climate change and certainly the severity was increased by climate-related issues uh, down to that cause. Uh, many other studies have noted other unprecedented effects of the fires, including massive animal population decreases, lack of vegetation recovery, and even direct human health effects, such as increased respiratory stress from smoke-related issues. Uh, but this study published in Science by scientists based in Israel has shown that previously unrecorded levels of aerosols and particulates have been pushed into the stratosphere and remain largely suspended in the upper layers of the Earth's atmosphere. So there are concerns that the smoke particles may act as a chemical catalyst for similar effects to the annual ice crystals on the ozone layer, but this is yet to be tested directly so we don't really know what effect the smoke is having but they mm. have measured chemical changes in the stratosphere direct measurement of ozone levels has showed a marked and prolonged decline in ozone levels in the period following the fires and the length of that ozone depletion has been longer than any 
period in the previous 15 years before the uh, Black Summer fires. So, due to the massive scale of the Black Summer bushfires, they burned over 24 million hectares over several months. These conditions are unlikely to occur again, so so it's kind of hard to check if this is only related to the fire or if there's other issues that may have contributed. But they do point to the need for better understanding of the chemical composition of smoke and its effects. So there's a lot of research that could be done in the meantime to understand exactly what's happening. Also, the scale of the fire is kind of what pushed the the smoke and the aerosols up into the stratosphere. And smaller fires don't tend to do that. They sort of... Uh, the the particulates precipitate out before they get up that high into the atmosphere so it's not something that will happen every time there's a fire but there is a concern that if fires can cause ozone depletion that may lead to potentially higher fuel loads because the lack of uv protection from the ozone uh, would mean that uh, we might get higher levels of plant deaths in vegetation so that could increase the fuel load on the ground which may increase turn increase the frequency of the fire so it's one of those things i guess where you know people talk about um unpredictable cascade effects and things like that from climate change and this may be one of those things which you know it's it's too early to say for sure but one thing could lead to the other which would increase you know increasing the frequency of fires would potentially increase the amount of smoke getting up into the stratosphere which could in turn increase the ozone depletion and we'll end up with this sort of uh death spiral loop i guess and we'll be sort of um both problems will exacerbate the other and it will make everything worse um yeah well if you think about too though um if the ultraviolet light is going to be affecting plant life then um that's going to exacerbate climate change as well because you're going to have you're going to removing carbon sinks out of the equation so it's a feedback on the actual uh, climate change process as well. As yeah. you're speeding up. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. reducing the ability yeah. of plants to absorb the carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, you know, there, there, there are a number of uh, potentially disastrous things related to this finding, but um, yeah, really uh, nothing good to say about bushfires or climate change or the ozone layers. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short range radio signals yet? Except for a single. Very powerful. Radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. You're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and I'm talking to Ben Mole, who is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Monash University. He works on finding evidence for the effectiveness of medical interventions or the lack thereof, which is becoming an increasing concern as we realize the scale of unreliable research out there. Professor Moll, welcome to Lost in Science. So the rest of the world is catching up on the problem, but how did you first become so interested in this question of research integrity? So I do a lot of studies myself in an informed clinical practice. And when doing that, I found out that there were other studies that were Problematic, and specifically one example of a study that had copied all the data from a completely different study from other from other authors in another country. And it turns out that the second paper actually was completely made up, so to say. And from that on, 
I was aware of the problem when as a reviewer and an editor I saw problematic papers myself I asked the authors questions so in our process of publication then authors have the opportunity to go away and that's what they did when I raised suspicion and then later on I saw these papers published elsewhere but they had changed the things that I put my finger on so to say because I kept a copy of the original submission I could basically prove that they had changed things Um, and then a third big moment was when a student came over from the Netherlands Esme Borderwijk and she was working on a particular topic um, PCOS and um, I asked her to look at a series of papers from a group of authors that I already was suspicious from and she found that these authors actually have copied their tables from one paper to the other so we could basically fabricate it well, you're never sh- not sure for the first paper that is there but from the papers that were copied from the first paper you can prove that these were fabricated it often does appear to be these individual cases of fraud that highlight people to an issue. But we also sometimes hear, I guess, about the number of journals being retracted. There is, say, the Retraction Watch website that keeps track of these things and often publishes their rates. And these can be quite disturbing themselves. But from what you're saying, though, the problem is much deeper and much bigger than just some of these isolated cases and even the rate of retractions. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Um, so the reason we know that is that we do what is called meta-analysis. So meta-analysis is a process where you collect all available data on a particular subject, or available studies. And what we do with individual participant data meta-analysis is that we approach the original authors to share their data. And that is actually a process where we very accurate are able to see whether the original study was done and was done okay. And our experience, and I talk here about multiple projects, is that in this process of individual participant data meet analysis, we are only able to get 50% of the available data. So the other 50%, despite the fact that the studies are done very recently, we don't get the data. And I think In half of that, so about 25% of the total, that is because there are problematic data and studies that are actually not done or made up. When you're talking about issues like getting access to the data and and meta-analysis and those sort of things, it can sound like an abstract question about research processes, but I guess you have to remember that this is real science that is really affecting people. I mean, how does some of this bad research affect the treatment of patients? Well, what happens is these meta-analyses that I was just talking about are very influential in setting up guidelines, uh, which then, and the guidelines are direct recommendations for care providers, doctors, nurses, to provide uh, the best care for patients. So to give you one example, uh, the state of Victoria is currently updating its guidelines for blood loss during delivery, which is, which, is a, which is a big issue, right? Women are really at risk of losing a lot of blood after a delivery. Um, and then the question is, what are the best medical treatments for this? And it turns out that a large part of that literature that informs that is actually unreliable. So that means that the recommendations that you are going to make 
are also going to be potentially unreliable. Obviously, I'm particularly interested in Australia here and what's happening in this country. So the question that comes to mind is, are we just as bad in this research misconduct or are there countries that have a poorer record than others? Yeah, I, I don't think it happens that much in Australia. You should be careful, obviously, in saying that, but I think that the governance structure in Australia is, is quite good. So we have oversight from ethics committees within our institutes. We have to report progress. There are colleagues watching with us what we do. So if I would come up out of the blue with a study that nobody knew that I was ever doing, that would, that would raise questions. So I don't think that any system can exclude that there is an individual who really fabricates. I also don't don't have really sight on whether kind of minor errors are made or the data are made a little bit better than they are in reality, but that's not fabrication. But, but the problem that I talk that we talk about here is not happening in Australia. It is happening in countries where there is no good governance of research. And the Middle East is one of these areas where um, I am afraid many research processes are done without any oversight. So I guess the question then becomes, what can be done about this? So, so I think it's a three... So I think one is that currently the whole science system is completely unaware of this problem. So we are basically never asking the question, are the data true at any level? We just assume it. So that is, that is one important thing. That, that we are we are the uh, Olympic Games, but without any doping checks. <laughs> um, and then I would say it's good to look in these countries where it happens, because I think these people are working with very low resources and impossible incentives. So they, they would not like to do it, so to say, but there is really unreasonable requirements for them to finish a particular study or to make progress promotion. Um, that, is, that is problem number one. Problem number two is that the peer review process where you should filter out these papers before they come into the system is, is completely not well um, organized. Specifically on the lower level journals, these, these, these journals are run by retired professors, so to say, um, respectfully, but with, with, with kind of little knowledge, um, usually by one or two persons, limited resources for peer review. So here is a, a task, I think, for the publishers. So if I can elaborate a little bit on that, the, the business model of uh, publishing, so to say, is that somebody in a university does research, sends that to a journal, then gives over the complete copyright and, and the publisher actually makes quite an amount of money off that. Uh, and I think that, that from that profit margin, more should be invested on the quality that is published. And the third problem is that everybody in the academic community is really looking away from this problem. So it's actually quite risky to start pointing at your colleagues because if you do it, then, then you take a risk yourself. I was talking to uh, Ian Freckleton, who is one of the um, famous uh, uh, Australians lead in the, in, the, in the legal system. 
And halfway the discussion, he was asking me, are you having any assets? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a very pleasant question to, to get, so to say. Not very encouraging, because everybody is afraid that if you accuse someone falsely, then people come after you. And then that you should compare that. There is really no incentive to do it, because getting down a paper that is actually fabricated is not in any metrics. Nobody nobody sees there any benefit. Mm -hmm. So it's a process, it's, it's, it's rather a negative process to, to, to be picky on your colleagues and criticize them, where you take a lot of risks, and there is not any benefit in that for yourself. Yeah. Just thinking though about what you said about how this data is then used though to create, say, clinical guidelines for treatment. How do we deal with the fact that the the information coming into those guidelines? How how do we cope with the the inputs being of poor quality, and how do we get something that we can trust in the end product? So, so at the present, I think we we do that very limited. So I I mean it's a bit difficult to say it for all the fields in medicine, but in my own field, and I work closely with an anesthesiologist in the UK, John Carlyle, and I've, I've looked in a series of studies into COVID, then the 20% fabricated studies is a minimum, so to say. Um, and that, that is really a problem. And I'm, I'm yeah, quite, quite happy or happy. I'm reassured to see that there is a response in my field. Um, so there is a big organization, the Cochrane Collaboration, that worldwide actually collects all the available evidence. And critical comments from my colleagues and me has led to action with Cochrane now. So they are developing a process where the, the question, are the data true, is actually going to be asked in these processes before the data are used. And it's obviously a sensitive process because um, you talk about low-resource settings. It comes from specific countries, so they're very close to going to racism, etc. You also don't want to point out people who actually do honest research. So it's, it's, I think it's a very interesting process, but it's not easy. Sounds like we've got a long way to go, but at least we're aware of the problem now and there is some, some work being done. Yes, Thank you, Chris. Well, thank you very much. That was Professor Ben Moll talking about scientific misconduct. on another episode of Lost in Science this week. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you'd like to be in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on email at lostinsightgmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or you can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. 
Or maybe you just want to tune in again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost inside.